0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare. And I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello there, friends. Welcome back to Out of Patience. On the show today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Ashanti Weiratna. She's a leading cancer researcher at Johns Hopkins, and she was recently appointed by President Biden to the National Cancer Advisory Board. That's a really big deal. She's also a researcher at the National Cancer Institute and the author of a great new book called Is Cancer Inevitable? Her book takes us inside her research lab and reveals how new insights are leading to major breakthroughs, even for patients with stage four cancer. We talk about those breakthroughs, what it's like growing up in South Africa, and seeing Van Gogh in virtual reality. Great show. Here we go. Ashani, thank you for braving the hot seat and coming here and Out of Patience. Thank you for having me. My first question to anyone with a PhD is, have you ever been asked, is there a doctor in the house? Someone says, (laughs) yes, her. And you say, no, not that kind of doctor.
1: Yeah, I should say, no, not a real doctor. Not a real doctor.
0: (laughs) Now, you have a lot of syllables under your title, but I want to start by talking about how you are not from the United States. And you have an interesting perspective on, wow, it's worse over here versus it just sucks in America. It kind of sucks in other places too, right?
1: That's absolutely right. So I grew up in Africa and specifically in Southern Africa during the time of apartheid. So, and I am a person of color, so I have definitely lived through uh, some challenging times in a country outside of America. As much as I love my childhood and as much as I loved growing up in Southern Africa, it was very interesting time to be there. I read that you are from the country of Lesotho. That's right. Which
0: I know because yeah. my daughter's obsessed with geography and she loves the term enclave. And uh-huh. <laughs> for those listening that don't know, enclave is a country inside another country.
1: That's correct. In fact, it was uh, the million dollar question on who wants to be a millionaire once. Was it really? Um, It was indeed. And it was, what is the only politically independent country that is completely landlocked by another country? So there are a couple of others like the Vatican, but I think Lesotho is the only country that's officially a country that's landlocked by another country.
0: Right. Because there's also like San Marino in Italy, but it's also kind of still part of Italy. It
1: doesn't count. That's right. That's exactly right. I was actually born in Sri Lanka, but I grew up in Lesotho.
0: Is that the correct pronunciation, Lesotho? Yes. It's like now we know how to say Kiev instead of Kiev. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to us about your origins, obviously coming from Sri Lanka and Lesotho. So what were some of the inherent challenges you experienced just by being of that country?
1: So You know, I have to say when I was 16, I realized I wanted to go into cancer research. And basically, I knew that as a woman of color trying to go to medical school and graduate school in South Africa, although they had amazing facilities, was going to be extremely challenging for what I felt I wanted to achieve um, in the medical slash research sphere. And so I decided that I wanted to come to America to pursue my studies here. And I have to say that for my dad, that was a big blow because he really wanted me to either stay in South Africa or go to the UK. <laughs> and so I had to fight him tooth and nail to come to America. You know, not many 16-year-olds
0: say, I want to be a cancer researcher when I grew up. I was kind of like, I want to drive cars when I was 16. <laughs> did that stem from anything in particular?
1: It did, actually. So when I was much smaller, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. Um, and I danced ballet very seriously for many years. And when I was 16, my ballet teacher, who I loved, was diagnosed with cancer. And so that really spurred some of my interest in cancer and cancer research. And I always loved biology. So that was sort of a natural progression in a way. So like 20 years
0: ago in this country, cancer was like the whisper campaign. Was there a similar cultural analog happening there?
1: So yeah, I mean, you know, the word cancer still is the word that will strike fear into anyone's heart, right? And back then, it was definitely even more so more of a death sentence. And in countries that are not in America or the U.K., the treatment options are fewer and further in between. And so not only was it a whisper campaign back then, to some extent it still is.
0: So this speaks to how as much as we can complain that the U.S. is broken, we're still light years ahead of most other countries.
1: Certainly of nations that are much poorer, definitely, because all of these medications and treatments cost a lot of money.
0: Is there any sense of how that trickle out works to developing nations these days?
1: You know, it's definitely challenging. It's something we're seeing with the global inequity and in vaccine distribution for the COVID vaccine, for example. It's not my area of research, so I maybe I'm not as up on all of that as I should be. But I can tell you that things like immunotherapy, CAR T-cells, therapies that we are using here that are literally curing cancer in some cases are not as readily available in developing nations. And that's a tragedy.
0: And it just even further splits the divide between the haves and the have-nots. Absolutely. So you were 16. I want to be a cancer researcher, said no one ever except you. (laughs) And where was it in your life at that point. You said, I'm going to America. That's the only place I have to be right now.
1: It was about then. So at 16, in the education system I grew up in, you had a choice to either go to university then or take a sort of an advanced level international baccalaureate, which is what I ended up doing. And those two years, I did a lot of research about America, American universities, research institutions, And my dad kept saying, but you could go to Oxford or Cambridge, they have good research too. And I kept saying, but dad, I've been in a British system all my life. I don't want to continue. I want to do something different. I can be, you know, and I was 16, honestly, what did I know? Right, (laughs) right, exactly. You know, I kind of felt just in my gut, I would have more opportunity somehow in the US and I might have been way off base, but that was what my stubborn 16 year old mind decided. So you were 16 when you came
0: here? That was the actual age when you arrived in this country?
1: No, no, no. I was 17.
0: Where did you go to university in the U.S.?
1: I went to this tiny little college called St. Mary's College of Maryland down in Southern Maryland. And the reason I ended up there is because my mom looked at a map and she said, well, if you must go to America, you need to go near someone we know. And so they had these old family friends who I hadn't seen since I was like two but they lived in DC. And so St. Mary's looked really close to DC on the map, which in reality, it's about a three hour drive. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no public transportation because it's in the middle of nowhere. But it was really an amazing decision for me because it immersed me immediately into American culture. I was the only foreign student at the time, And everyone was really warm and really welcoming.
0: Well, I was going to ask, like, that's like deep end of the pool. But for different reasons, like you didn't go right to NYU or Columbia. You went to the middle of nowhere. But even still, is that (laughs) the best slice of America either way?
1: (laughs) You know, I wouldn't trade my college experience for anything. You know, I'd also looked at George Washington University, which is where I went for grad school ultimately. And I'm glad that I did what I did, because it's as you say, it was like immersion therapy, right? I kind of went there, everyone around me was from a suburb of Maryland <laughs> somewhere, right, right. For someone who'd grown up, you know, moving from place to place. There was such an attraction to that for me. So
0: let's talk about getting to medicine before the internet, before anything that matter was there. Like I was diagnosed 26 years ago in 1996 when they kind of just like tore you apart and threw you back together and hoped you lived. You know, you grew up in medicine in the
1: earliest days. That's right. So, you know, I have to say one of the beautiful things of St. Mary's was they had this internship program where they matched us to different labs across, you could go anywhere across the country. I ended up staying in Maryland for both of my internships. And so being at St. Mary's doing this internship was one of the first times I was exposed to actual scientific equipment, right? So one of my first lab rotations was doing some electron microscopy, and it was absolutely fascinating to me. So We look back and we think it was such a primitive time of medicine, but even then it was incredible. The technology that we could break open a cell and look inside it, and that's almost 30 years ago, that's pretty amazing.
0: We have very different good problems to have now than we used to. You're from the Atari days, you know, not the uh, PlayStation 5 days.
1: (laughs) That's right. Actually, we went yesterday to the Van Gogh exhibit, which I don't know if you know about. I've heard about that. Yes. And one of the things in that exhibit is a virtual reality. And I put that thing on and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. If I look over my left shoulder, I see a windmill. If I look over my right shoulder, I see a mountain covered in snow. Right. And I look ahead and there's a forest and it feels like you're there. And then, you know, I came home and I was telling my kid about it. And she was like, yeah, that's VR. <laughs> so I was like, okay.
0: So you got the GW? Was that a dream come true?
1: It was amazing. So but between St. Mary's and GW, I actually went to Hopkins and I worked in a lab there for two years. I also volunteered in a pediatric oncology ward and I read books to little kids after hours and... For me, that's when I decided I wanted to get a PhD and not an MD because I fell in love with the kids i read to, and we lost a couple of them along the way, and I realized I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't put up with that loss multiple times during my life, so I decided that I was better off at the bench and working from that end to, you know, help to cure cancer one day.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break and be right back to talk about her book, Is Cancer Inevitable? It's like a cliffhanger. (laughs) All right, we'll be right back.
2: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
0: Talk about starting the morning right Okay, we're back. And my first question is, why a book? Aren't there enough books? I'm kidding. We always need new books and smart books. But let's talk about when the spark first hit you that these words need to be put into print.
1: So I have to say, I think everybody who does this job thinks about writing a book at one time or another And the Bloomberg Philanthropies approached us and said that they would like to put out a series of books from some of their professors. And that seemed like a great idea because I felt like, and especially during the dark days of the pandemic, that we lose hope about so many things. And one of the things that I think we shouldn't lose hope in is cancer research, right? Because if you look at patients' today and the therapeutic options they have available to them. Basically, 20 years ago, we were ripping people apart, putting them back together and hoping for the best. And now, you know, I just read an article about some of the amazing work from Carl June with the CAR T-cell therapy and his patients who were basically stage four cancer patients are still alive with no evidence of disease 10 years later. And I just thought, we need a little light right now. We need some hope. And I'd like to think my book conveys how much hope there is and how much more we still have to do.
0: I think it's appropriate for there to be like an asterisk next to this that if cancer is inevitable, which I think it is, you can't stop biology, can we at least not die from it? Is the the minimal I ask of science, because we at least not die from it.
1: That's absolutely right. You know, and I think that's the way I've always approached my research in our science, which is we need to understand how to treat this disease so that we can get it to the stage where it's something manageable like diabetes or hypertension, right? I agree with you. I don't know that it's not inevitable because our cells are mutating. They're being exposed to environmental agents. You know, My hope is that by fully understanding this disease, we can find ways in which to keep it at bay for as long as possible. And that basically is what is happening in some variants of cancer now.
0: Right. There's always going to be situations where you can't control it. The inevitability is baked into you because you're born with it or you're two months old or, or a young adult like I was. There's nothing you do to make it happen. It just kind of shows up. And we already know that there are plenty of behavioral things we can do as human beings to reduce the risk of these things. And yet athletes and vegans still get them. So right. in this miracle world of genomics, your DNA controls your destiny. Or does it? How do you feel about that?
1: Ooh, you're talking to someone who believes in the (laughs) microenvironment. So, does your DNA control your destiny? Sure, to some extent. In my lab, we're super interested in understanding how communication between cells leads, you know, tumor cells to misbehave. So, we've been looking a lot at aging as a driver of cancer. One of the things we've seen is that the normal healthy skin cells that surround an initiated tumor cell, in this case melanoma, which is one of the deadliest forms of skin cancer, how those healthy young cells can sort of keep those tumor cells at bay. And then as they age and they start to break down over normal aging processes, we see how the conversations change between those normal skin cells that are now getting older and grumpier And um, they're telling the tumor cells to go do what they want and go invade and grow all over the body. So, yes, DNA is important. Mutations are important. But there are a lot of non-genetic changes that drive tumor cell behavior and make them more aggressive.
0: I'm going to get super nerdy now. One of my favorite words that I learned that I'm proud to know is a telomere. Uh huh. <laughs> and for the listeners, I may have mentioned this in the past on a couple of shows, but uh, the way I explain a telomere is that your DNA has like little shoestring aglets at the end, these little mm-hmm. plastic nibs. By the way, an aglet is the plastic nib at the end of a shoelace, fun fact of the day.
1: Also, my favorite crossword board.
0: Yes, nerds for the win. <laughs> but that the aglets on the end of your DNA strands erode over time based on the environmental influence that your body gets exposed to. Is that correct?
1: And that's really good. Yeah, that's correct.
0: So the shorter they get, the worse your immune system?
1: Not just your immune system, but just in general, the processes, the cellular processes like division, replication, DNA, damage, repair, etc.
0: So is any of this miracle science going on? I'll just lop it under one big umbrella. Does it look at that granular level of your DNA's integrity? Or is it really looking to turn you into Wolverine in a sense where your body can fight its own battles on its own?
1: So I think there are so many areas of research that are going on at the same time. The Wolverine strand of research, for example, is really all immunotherapy, right? Teaching your body how to attack its own tumors and that has just been a game changer especially in the disease in which i work melanoma immunotherapy has been amazing however you know understanding what causes damage to the dna how we repair that damage especially as we get older all of that is going to be incredibly important in understanding how we respond to other therapies so i think one of the most exciting experiments we did in our lab was to look at genetically identical tumor cells that we put in either young environments or aged environments. And then we treated them. So they had a specific genetic mutation, right? So one mutation, we treated them with a drug specifically designed to that mutation and nothing else should have mattered, right? One target, one drug, but it depending on whether you put those cells with other cells that were young or other cells that were aged, they behaved completely differently. And the ones that were put in an aged environment did not respond to the drug. The ones that were in a young environment did. And that was because the conversations that the tumor cells had with the young normal cells or the aged normal cells dictated how they responded to those drugs.
0: So I wanted to debunk something for me here on the show. Is it true or is it vaporware, that they're working on blood tests that can detect cancer before it's even there.
1: It is true that they're working on them. Yes.
0: All right. So we're getting closer to Captain America.
1: (laughs) Maybe we are.
0: Is that like 10 years off? Is that like going to Mars far away? Is there any sense of like where the
1: average listener can say, I am optimistic for this? I honestly have no idea. I do know there are clinical trials for some of the vaccines based a lot on the technology used for COVID vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, that there are some vaccine trials for cancer that are ongoing as well, which that is pretty exciting. Although given vaccine hesitancy, you know, well, who knows?
0: That's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole separate conversation there. That's
1: definitely a hot seat. Podcast. I'm going to pull out the
0: bourbon before I start talking about that one.
1: Yeah. You and me both.
0: I have a bit of a nitpick. I'm sure it's Hopkins Press, but I noticed on the inner jacket when it talks about the book, it uses the word cancer victim. And Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of like a bad word these days. We don't use that word anymore, but I kind of understand in academia, like I'm not an outrage culture person. I just Mm -hmm. feel like that word should be retired. How do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I agree with you, except that sometimes people are made to feel as if they did something to get their cancer. Mm. I totally agree with you, I don't like the word victim. We're hundred percent on the same page with that. However, in the disease I work on melanoma, 99% of them are caused by tanning, right. And so people who get skin cancer are often made to feel like, oh, you kind of did that, you know which is unfair because that's not the case. Yes, you can protect yourself. But you know many of the people who do go out and get excessive sun exposure, Won't develop melanoma. So it's not really fair to blame somebody. So I agree with you. We shouldn't use a word victim. But at the same time, I worry that people will think they could have controlled this and they shouldn't have let it happen to them when really it was probably well beyond their control.
0: My great grandma came over from Eastern Europe in the 1920s and she sunbathed on Coney Island with a mirror. For forty oh years, <laughs> and she did not get one blemish on her body. Got of perfect health at ninety-seven years old. So,
1: unbelievable, you know.
0: But she's the opposite of the marathon or vegan that gets cancer.
1: That's right, and I guess that's kind of my point. Right, is that I think a lot of times patients will feel as if there is blame apportioned to them somehow, even if that was never the intention of the physician. But you have to ask, right? If you're seeing a melanoma patient, you do have to ask what their tanning history is. Right. And so, yeah, I agree that victim is not a great word, but I also don't want someone to feel like they did that to themselves.
0: Speaking of tanning, I'm a big fan of all the melanoma research advocate groups that like forced mm-hmm. the tanning salons to ban minors. So, yes. just a shout out to those advocates that did all the hard work for us. It's a really oh big deal to get that done. So, it
1: really is. Yeah. And they are amazing people. I'm lucky to know some of them personally. And, you know, what they have done to advance the cause here, because we are light years behind countries like Australia, which have outright banned tanning beds altogether. Right. What a novel idea. <laughs> Yeah, imagine that. (laughs) So I'm with you. Huge shout out to them because they're amazing.
0: All right. So the book is It's Cancer Inevitable from what Hopkins Press.
1: Yes. Hopkins Wavelengths Press. Yes.
0: So listeners, we're going to put a link in the description to where you can get the book. But what are the big takeaways you'd like people to get out of this book?
1: I'd like them to know that cancer is complex. (laughs) It is not one thing as a cancer researcher you hear over and over again is that whole thing about, oh, you guys already have a cure. You're just trying to make money off it so you're not releasing it. I always tell Anybody who says to me, why don't you have a cure for cancer? Come spend a week with us in the lab and see what happens. Right. (laughs) Because it is so complex. You know, experiments where you give a cell a drug and it says, huh, I don't like that. So it builds a pump on its surface and pumps the drug right back out again. Right, (laughs) You know, it's unbelievable what cancer cells can do. And we, we also have loved ones who die of cancer. And so for us, this mission is personal. It means a lot of sacrifices. There are many, many, many days that I have worked very late hours sacrificing my family. And I just want everyone to know we are working our hardest to cure this disease. And I want everyone to know how much hope there is. And if you look back, I think it's very easy to say, you know, we haven't cured cancer yet. And while that's true, patients are surviving so much longer than they ever did.
0: Well, I look at what Biden just announced this week with the new moonshot. Yes. They don't use the word cure anymore. They're looking like reducing deaths by 50 percent. Very different language. And I, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's spot on, right? It It is something we need to manage and control. And eradication would be wonderful, but we need to be realistic.
0: I should quantify for the listeners what Biden did this week as of this taping today. <laughs> Not on when this show is going to be published. (laughs) That's true. All right. Very cool. Dr. Ashani Weiraratna, Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Cancer Biology, the E.V. McCollum Chair of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. You have earned all those syllables. (laughs) Thank you. Once again, the book is, Is Cancer Inevitable? I thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd love to have you back. And it's just exciting to to be your friend.
1: Oh, that's awesome. It's so nice to meet you. And thank you so much for having me on the show.
2: That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.
0: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail.